Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, I'm your host, Simon. What happens here if you're new? Arnaldo today has written me a script. I've never read it before. I don't know this case, despite... Well, obviously not a personal connection to it, because it occurred a really long time ago, but a geographic connection to it. This uh, script is called The Beast of Sinets, The Killer of Hope. It's a Czech murder case. For those of you who don't know, I live in the Czech Republic. There is... Um, I don't want to be too specific, but let's just say I've, uh, I've got a holiday house. And it's, uh, it's quite close. It's in fact very close to, uh, this village. So, uh, yeah, that's, uh, I've never been there. I've never actually been into that little village. But next time I go up there, I'll take a little drive in. Apparently there's like eight people live there or something. It's just too crowded at the moment, I think. But, uh, apparently, also, a serial killer comes from there. That is unexpected. Anyway, let's just jump into it. Thank you, Arnaldo, for putting it together. Jen also does the, uh, the video the audio afterwards and uh yeah let's just jump in twentieth of july nineteen fifty one it's a friday we're in the woods just outside of Sinets, today's Czech Republic. Back then, Czechoslovakia. Sinets is located some 60 kilometers west of Prague and 60 kilometers north of the city of Pilsen. Further, 125 kilometers to the west lies the border with the German Federal Republic, or West Germany, beyond the Iron Curtain. But today, a group of kids have other matters in mind than international politics. Yeah. <laughs> Amount of time I spent thinking about international politics as a kid? Zero. <laughs> They are just out there in the forest, looking for the perfect spot to play out their adventures. Finally, they find it. It's a small clearing shaded by the surrounding trees. What makes it perfect is a sandpit right in the middle of it. The kids are soon jumping into the pit, digging holes and building castles. Sandpits are amazing. Just wanted to add this in. I've got like two, well, one young kid who's old enough to play in a sandpit. And it's just you sit by that sandpit and you're like, okay, play in the sandpit. You can just sit there. And the kid entertains themselves in the sandpit. It's crazy. I've not seen anything that compels, other than bloody television, that compels my kid quite as much as a sandpit. And you can just sit there. There was one, like, last summer, when my kid was even younger, like, maybe a year and a half. And I'm just sitting by this sandpit. And she's having an absolutely wild time in the sandpit while I'm just sitting there, having a beer. It's great. It's a beautiful time. Big parenting decision. Then a scream rises above the canopies. Oh, my God. They found something. They found, like, a body in there, haven't they? <laughs> Why would you bury your body in the kid's sandpit? It's gonna get found by kids, you f One of the children has found something. The others draw near to the mysterious object. It's a foot, a human foot, of course it is. It's one of those discoveries we hope our children would never come across. Those kids were shocked, surely, and they could have done without it. But it was their chance encounter with the brutality of human nature that helped them bring down the beast of Sinets, the killer of hope. The People Smuggler. To better understand the events of that summer, we have to step backwards in time, precisely to late February 1948. This is when a Soviet-backed coup installed a communist government in Prague, turning Czechoslovakia into a client state of the USSR. The new government launched a campaign of anti-communist purges and mass arrests. This may have been an incident of the Cold War, but things were turning rather hot for many Czechoslovak citizens. Thousands of them fled abroad, beyond the Iron Curtain, not willing to live under a totalitarian state. Yeah, I know a couple of people who's uh, found, like, interestingly, a couple of people who've come back. Um, they were born here, and then they fled with their parents at some point, 
And then now as adults, they came back here, which is super interesting. Well into the early 1950s, hundreds of... Rev- and their Czechs, like, good. Like, they all speak Czech because they... Well, they both speak Czech. I know two people who... Um, but people are like... Czech people are like, you kind of forgot some of it, didn't you? Because, like, the grammar's super complicated. They're like, look, I didn't speak here for, like, 20 years. Give me a break. Don't you talk to me about grammar. Well into the early 1950s, hundreds of refugees were still trying to escape the clutches of the STB, the feared secret police, by fleeing to Bavaria or Austria. The border passes were difficult to negotiate and authorities had set up some cunning traps. Dissidents successfully crossed border fences and were welcomed with open arms by friendly West German soldiers. To their horror, they realized too late that they'd just walked through a fake border and those soldiers were STB agents in disguise. Oh my god, that's so clever. I hadn't heard of that. That is a really clever way of trapping people and uh yeah also scary as hell because you'll be like okay are we really in germany do we really escape do we really get beyond the iron curtain and you'll be like for days you'll be wondering it's like okay this looks really german but it could all be an elaborate trap okay i'm like really far into germany now but it could be a trap and psychologically that's got to be quite difficult a thriving industry then flourished that of people smugglers who thanks to their knowledge of the territory were able to spirit refugees to safety in exchange for outrageous prices of course which was mainly exacted in jewelry amongst one of the best and most trusted exfiltrators was one uh hubert pilchik pilchik who those who knew him described him as average ordinary inconspicuous but overall a friendly and decent man who liked to drink a glass of wine with strangers down the pub. Well, that's a bit weird, honestly, because as, like, Czech Republic is... If it's not the biggest beer-drinking country in the world, it's closely followed by after Ireland or something like that. The amount of beer consumed here is huge. And you don't go into a pub and see a man drinking a glass of red wine. Men drink beer. Like, 99% of the time you walk into a pub, especially outside of a city, you won't see men drinking wine. It just doesn't happen. It's strange. So we already got to be suspicious of Pilchik. Hubert was born on October the 14th, 1891, in Novi Rosenkov, now in eastern Czechia. <laughs> yeah, Czech Republic changed its name a few years ago at the UN to be Czechia rather than the Czech Republic. No one really uses that word other than Google Maps. So, I don't know what to make of that. According to his own tales, he had traveled far and wide, working the most disparate jobs. At the age of 21, apparently he had been a sailor on a transatlantic ship, not just any ship, the Titanic. And yes, he had survived the sinking, of course. Sounds like, I don't know, sure he could have, but really? He ended up working at the Škoda factory in Pilsen, from which he retired at the end of the 1940s. After that, he settled in Sonets with his wife Antonia. The couple was childless, and Hubert had plenty of spare time on his hands, which he dedicated to enjoying nature. His great passions were ornithology and the collection of medicinal herbs. He knew the best spots to find them, high above the Shamava Mountains, bordering Bavaria, about 80 kilometers south of Pilsen. He quickly developed a reputation for being an effective herbalist. People around the area traveled to see him as a large resort to cure their ailments. Hubert took to inviting some of his patients to stay in his house for an entire week. Sensing a business opportunity, he started to charge them for bed and breakfast. Sounds like a pretty sensible business move, to be honest. Arnaldo put an exclamation point in there. I, so I guess I should be surprised by this, but it's like, if I, I, I'd do exactly the same thing. Be like, stay at my house. Stay now. Okay, I'm going to need some money. It's cool business. Oh, but this was during... No, this wasn't during communism. This was pre communism when was this taking place 1948 was the communism so this was uh end of the 1940s oh i don't quite know and i don't know could people charge 
under communism? I guess they could. I don't know. Well, I, I don't know either, but I can make a guess. Should probably know better history, shouldn't I? Especially the country I live in. Later, he stumbled across an even more profitable enterprise. While exploring the Shamava range, he came into contact with some people smugglers. He was also about to locate some convenient mountain passes to sneak into southern Germany. How about he took to people smuggling himself? This guy's a little capitalist communist, isn't he? <laughs> little by little, he became a trusted exfiltrator of dissidents. People who had fled Bavaria thanks to his help wrote back home, praising his services. Through word of mouth, other interested parties turned to him. His new business was flourishing, which sounds like quite a dangerous thing. Be like, yeah, word of mouth about this people smuggler is great. Eventually, word of mouth is going to get to the STD, STD, SDK. SDK? No. STB. STK is the Czech version of an MOT. I don't know if I should admit this. I probably shouldn't. So let's just say allegedly it definitely wasn't me. <laughs> I took my car to get serviced. And they're like, it was due for its MOT. I, I took my friend took his car to be serviced. <clears throat> definitely not me. Right. And uh, they were like, uh, you were supposed to get this MOT'd, uh, SDK'd six months ago. And I was like, whoops. <laughs> It's just driving around illegally for six months. I just didn't keep track of it. I'm terrible at keeping track of these things. <laughs> I'm really busy. Escape of the ba Bally Baileys. Baileys? Uh, sometime in early 1951, word of Hubert Pilchik's services reached the ears of Renata Bally, a 31-year-old photographer living in Pilsen. Renata was a beautiful woman with several lovers wrapped around her little finger. As a free-spirited soul, she did not care much for the regime in Prague, nor did her 65-year-old father Emmanuel, a formerly successful businessman who surely had missed the advantages of the free market economy. Oh my god, this would suck. Like, I think now, if communism came, and they'd take away my business, they'd take away my house. I'd be like, what the f man? <laughs> f you. I would definitely leave. I get my, if, I mean, I think my family would be pretty up for that. It'd be like, you know, my wife's parents remember communism. No, it probably wasn't brilliant. And it would be like, let's get the f out of here. Let's just, let's just leave. Which would suck because all my stuff would be taken away. And then years later, when communism inevitably fails, there's this whole thing called restitution where there's a bunch of property here where it's like okay the the, the chain of ownership became complicated because at some point it was co uh, confiscated by the not and i'm sorry check people listening if i'm getting this wrong this is just my understanding of it feel free to correct me if i'm wrong but uh, my understanding of, of it is there's like the nazis came and then they stole every like stole people's properties and be like yeah now you know ss fuhrer whoever is going to live in this house and be like but this is my house what the f <laughs> leave me alone leave me alone snake and uh, then the communists came along and they were like, actually, we're going to have this. And all the while, the original owners got nothing. And so years later, you know, they might have fled abroad or whatever. They'll come back and they'll be like, yo, that's my house. And it's this really complicated process called restitution. And uh, now if you buy somewhere, you've got to make sure there's like no claims against it and all of this stuff. And uh, yeah, it's complicated. Like communism sucks. I mean, probably not as bad as fascism. I think, mm, I don't know, Stalin also killed. I was... It was a lot of people, wasn't it? It was more people. Look, both of these things suck. Let's not do them. And uh, let's just move on. Father and daughter started making plans to escape to Bavaria, where Emmanuel could count on the help of his former business contacts. They also considered taking along the young Dana, a 12-year-old niece of Renata who was living with them. In my research, I found no mention of Dana's parents. Therefore, I can only assume that her parents had died during World War II, or maybe they'd been amongst the early victims of the communist government. So Emmanuel, Renata, made first contact with Pilchev. Hubert advised them that they should not travel together, as that would make escape more risky. First, they had to fake an 
internal relocation. Then Emmanuel would cross the border first, followed by Renata and eventually Dana. According to plan, in February 1951, the Valleys spread word that they were moving from Pilsen into a new house in the village of Zruch, right next to Sanets. They packed all of their belongings and sent them to Zruch, but of course they never showed up there. By early March, Renata and Dana were actually hiding in Pilsen, sheltered by an aunt of hers. On the 6th, Emmanuel traveled to Sanets to begin his perilous journey alongside Hubert Pilchik. They set off on a southwestern direction, and after driving some 50 kilometers, the duo stopped for a rest at the Lipovka Gamekeeper's Lodge in the village of Nekmir. Both men were in their 60s and understandably tired, so Pilchik suggested to Bailey, You should take a nap for a moment. We still have a long way to go, and you have to be at least a little fresh. Some days later, Pilchik showed up at Renata's aunt's house in Pilsen. He was bringing good news. Your father is already on the other side, he told her. And now it's your turn. Renata Bailey waited a few more days and then decided it was time. She bade goodbye to Dana and her aunt and set off for Sunets, her rendezvous with Pilchik. Some weeks went by. In May, Pilchik reappeared in Pilsen to collect his last ward, little Dana. He told her that her aunt, Renata, and granddad Emmanuel were settled in Bavaria, so it was time for her to join them. Dana hugged for the last time her great aunt and bravely set off across the border. Some weeks later, the great aunt was elated to receive a letter signed by Dana, and it read, We are fine. We are doing well. We will greet you. Come to us. But no, they were not fine. They were not doing well. And it certainly wasn't advisable that she come to them. Yeah, this is like a fake letter and the beast has murdered them all, hasn't he? And he's taken their shit. Is that his motivation or is he just a straight psycho? Because he took all their stuff to Sinet's where he lives, right? And then he smuggles them across the border, allegedly. And by allegedly, it means he's probably murdering them. Um, is he doing it for stuff or is he just doing it because he likes murder? It would be a difficult choice for anyone. Uh, they're both bad. <laughs> I'm like, I try to be like, well, one's worse. It's like, no, not really. It's still murder, isn't it, Simon? Stop it. Fire in the sandpit. On the 6th of March 1951, the Gamekeeper's Lodge at Neckmere burned down. It appeared to be an ordinary incident, a routine matter, but authorities had to investigate nonetheless. A routine matter. It's like, yeah, those Gamekeeper's Lodge, always burning down, pretty much monthly. And upon inspecting the bedroom, local police found the remains of a badly burned human body. All that remained was a severely charred head, part of the neck, and parts of the torso. The limbs had been completely consumed by the fire. That's got to be a pretty hot fire, right? To burn off the limbs? Limbs? Was it an accident or the result of foul play? The police called for the experts of the Pilsen Institute of Forensic Medicine, who immediately stated that the body had probably been covered with flammable material and intentionally set on fire. The forensic staff sifted through the ashes and found some interesting clues a small locket on a chain, two spectacle lenses, a shoe buckle, and a piece of necktie. On the 8th of March, the remains were taken to Pilsen for an autopsy. The pathologist reported that the body parts belonged to a man aged 50 or 60 about 1.75 meters tall. They also examined the corpse's arteries and found that they contained so-called boiled blood. This finding proved that the victim was still alive when the fire attacked his body. What the f***, man? Being burned alive. I hear it's... I mean, it's... Oh, God, I hear that. This, this is one of those things that has stuck with me for years, so I don't know whether I should repeat it, because it's one of those things that you think about, and then you come back to think about it, and you're like, well, that's unpleasant, but I'm going to share it anyway, because, look, you're listening to a true crime show, aren't you? So uh, you are probably, you know, you're a hardy type, or you just are a bit of a psycho. <laughs> um, that when you get set on fire and you're alive, apparently it's horrible for a very short amount of time. But then all of the 
uh, pain sensors on your skin or whatever are burned. So after that, you don't really feel very much, even though you're still on fire and you're still alive, which is one of those horrifying thoughts that I've come back to many times over my life. And now maybe you will too. You're welcome. But look, I'm just saying, even though that's the case, or maybe it's not, it's one of those things I heard years ago. I don't want, it's like not how I would choose to go. We talked about being buried alive in the last episode, or at least the last one I recorded. And I was like, that's got to be the worst way to go. I still think that's worse than getting burned alive. But these are all horrible ways to go. Had he been dead at the time of the fire, the blood would have collected in his veins, leaving the arteries empty. Local police, in the meantime, searched the area around Nemrick looking for witnesses. Unfortunately, nobody had seen two or more men entering the lodge on the 6th of March. The cops also noted that there were no signs of pulling or towing on the soil surrounding the lodge, so they concluded that the victim had entered the building on his own two legs and was murdered there. But beside that, they had no further clues. The investigation fizzled out, and the case risked turning cold. Until... A fateful Friday in July when a group of children discovered a human foot buried under the sand pit in the Senex woods. On Saturday, the 21st of July, police and forensics dug away at the sand in the clearing. They found the body of a young woman dressed only in a bra, a shirt, and a pair of earrings. A clothesline had been strung around her neck. Strangulation appeared to be the cause of death, which had taken place sometime in March. The investigators inspected the lady's teeth and found that she had crowns on three of them. For more than a month, the police patiently visited all hospital wards, dentists, and dental technicians in the area. And at the end of August, they struck gold. Is that a joke? Because dental things are made out of gold. They're not still made out of gold, right? I have one filling, and it's... You can't even tell it's there. This is a boring story, but I'm going to tell it anyway. <laughs> There's. A, I went to the dentist, and I was like, so, yeah, I'd never had a filling before. This was a few years ago. Apparently, I take good care of my teeth. And uh, they're like, you need a filling. And I'm like, okay, great. You can, they're going to fill it with gold or metal or something. It's like, no, they use this ceramic stuff. And then they're like, do you want to pay, like, I don't know, it's like a few crowns, check crowns extra. And we can take a mold of your current tooth and then use that mold to form the ceramic paste or whatever that they put in the tooth. So it feels like you don't even, uh, so that it feels like the, to the tooth that was there before. And I'm like, yeah, go for it. Go on then. <laughs> that sounds cool. And it's amazing. Like I walked out of the dentist office, like, do I need to, you know, not eat anything for a day? And they're like, no, 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 you're good to go. Couldn't tell. And since then, haven't been able to tell. It's been years. And that filling's just back there doing its thing. And I'm like, dentistry is amazing. <laughs> Boring story. Let's carry on. Uh, one of the dental technicians recognized the crowns as coming from his practice and was able to produce the patient's records. The identity of the victim should come as no surprise, I guess. She was, of course, Miss Renata ba Bally. Yeah, I mean, it would come as a surprise to them because they have no idea about this. But of course, we... we know exactly who this is because she's the only woman in our story so far. The police kept a record of citizens' internal movements, according to which the Bally's had recently moved to the village of Zrats. Detectives traveled there, hoping to speak with Renata's family to gather some clues or simply to relate the bad news. Yeah, it's gotta be the, the, like the communists and stuff keeping track of you. That's gotta be super intense. I have to say, when I moved here, I found it really intense. You have to carry ID here. Like, wherever you go, um... The police expect you to have ID on you, like have your passport or your driver's license or uh, no, I don't think a driver's license counts. You have to have your little ID card or like your uh, residency card. And I'm like, that feels really intense. Like in the UK, you just don't. There's no ID cards in the UK. It was a huge thing a few years ago. There A few years ago, like 10 years ago or whatever. And the government want to introduce ID cards because they'll be useful. 
And people were like, no ID cards. We don't want to be ID'd. No, 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 no. And I was kind of like, okay, I kind of just got used to that. And then I came here and it's like, oh yeah, okay. I sometimes they don't bother and I'm just like, I'll just pay the fine. I don't know what the fine is. I've never been, I've been stopped by the police when I was driving. And of course you got your driver's license on you. Fascinating story again, Simon. How about you do less tangents and more talking about the story? It's, I don't know, I feel like I got more tangents because this is where I live. The locals reported that yes, the Bally's father and daughter had moved all their stuff to the village, but no, they had never actually lived there. A witness reported how two unidentified men had come to collect some of their possessions in early March. Nope. Their neighbors ratting them out, really. Unfortunately, the accounts of this case have not preserved the names of the detectives or the magistrates involved. But whoever they were might be, they were no amateur sleuths. They had been capable of applying solid principles of forensic science so far, and it was now time to put the imagination and intuition to work. Are we having a story with competent police? Competent communist police? Alright, let's go. Someone in the team started to put two and two together, and what they had was the charred corpse of a male in his late 50s or 60s, dead on the 6th of March. The strangled corpse of Renata Bally, also dead in March. A father and daughter who organize a trip to Zruch, but never show up, and their possessions are taken away in early March. The investigative thesis was that the charred body belonged to Renata's father, and the two had been killed by the same person. The pills and police started digging into the Bally's background, especially into Renata's looking for any thread that they could pull out. Very soon, it emerged that Renata was not a supporter of the communist regime, that she was making plans to disappear beyond the border. They also discovered that she led a relatively dissolute lifestyle and had a string of lovers. Investigators located Renata's boyfriend and took him in for questioning. At this stage, he was the main and only suspect, although the poor guy had no idea that Renata was dead. Oh, God. It's like those TV shows where they're like, they just accidentally reveal that the person's like husband or wife or whatever is dead, assuming they knew. And they're like, what? And they're like, oh, God. It's one of those, just those, one of those moments in TV where you're like, oh, oh, this couch. Oh, my God. I'm watching The Office. I've never seen the US version of The Office. I saw the UK one like 20 years ago when it first came out, but I've never seen the US one. And I'm watching it. And this is how I this is this is how I watch this show. This is entirely it. Like I'm watching it with her with my wife, and all I'm doing, like every few seconds, is like, oh, oh, Michael, no. That's exactly that's the whole show. That's it's not. La- I don't laugh at it. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, ah, it's so uncomfortable. It's brilliant though. I just got to the end of the. Uh, this is another another tangent whistle. I just got to the end of the second season where uh, Jim and Pam finally kiss, and you're like, yes, come on, yes, 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 yes. I was very happy about this. <laughs> so sad I invested time in this TV show <laughs> from 20 years ago. Uh, he thought the arrest was related to his lover's plans to escape and probably feared a close encounter with the secret police. The young man revealed that he'd last seen Renata on the 11th of March, and then nothing. The man initially acted as if he didn't care much for Renata's fate, but then he admitted looking for her at the start of June. He knew Renata had an aunt in Pilsen, and so he knocked at her door. The aunt told him that Renata, Dad, Emmanuel, and even little niece Dana had all fled the country and were now living happily in Bavaria. The aunt also revealed that they had been taken across the border by some uncle in Senate. In this case, the word uncle did not indicate a relative, but rather a middle-aged friend. Yeah, that's the thing. Like In the UK, like 
maybe i don't know i never had someone like this but i know people who've called like a close family friend aunt or uncle in check uh, it seems super common like i'm always, my um my kid was calling our babysitter or someone aunt and i was like what and my, and my wife's like yeah yeah that's fine i'm like oh okay you learn something new every day right it was now time to locate this friend. The next thread the detectives would clutch at was Renata's aunt. They immediately drove to her house and questioned her. What did she know about the mysterious uncle? First answer was disappointing. I don't know the uncle's name, she said. Okay, but did she know where he lived? I don't even know his exact address, she continued. Had the police hit a dead end? Not really, as the auntie revealed that she had once driven to Sonnet's with Renata and she had pointed to the house that he lived in. The police immediately hit the road, heading to Sonnet's with the auntie in tow. She pointed out the house of the uncle to the officers and they proceeded to knock at the door. As it swung open, the auntie recognized him straight away. The friendly uncle, the man who should have smuggled the Bally's into Bavaria, was of course Mr. Hubert Pilchick. The Pilchick Box Pilchick at this stage was not a murder suspect, but the police had reasonable grounds to believe that he was a people smuggler and proceeded to raid his property. The search initially returned two handguns and several suitcases full of clothes clearly not belonging to him. The officers also found stashes of jewelry, proof that he had been collecting payments from refugees. Among them, some jewels were identified as belonging to Renata. The search continued in the goat shed located just outside of Pilchick's home. Here police found suitcases of presumably stolen items and something else. Something truly horrible, which I'll refrain from mentioning for the moment. Please consider this a warning. Oh my god, are we gonna get there was that Gein one. And I was talking to David who wrote that one. And I was like, <laughs> there was there were parts where I'm like, and David is always I remember, was it George who wrote one? And I was like, dude, it, it, this is way too much. I think it was his first script. And I was like, think less saw and more CSI. And then we had that Gein one. And Dave was like, I know about the saw and CSI thing. But he's like, this, this is, I mean, it's Ed Gein. <laughs> There's only so much I can soften it up. And there was a paragraph describing what Ed Gein was keeping in these boxes. And you don't want to know what Ed Gein was keeping in his boxes. Ed Gein was mega f***ed up. Mega f***ed up. Like... He wasn't the most prolific serial killer we've covered. F***ing Pedro Lopez takes that handle. But Gein was like, what, what are you doing? He was properly sick. Like, Pedro Lopez was just a psycho. Like, full-on psycho, child murderer, terrible, worst person to ever live. Ah, this competition. But Gein was like, he was just sick. Like, fully sick. Anyway, let's see if Pilchick was sick. I hope it's just a body. When you hope it's a body, that's kind of grim, isn't it? But their finds confirmed the detective's hunch that this friendly yet smuggling uncle had murdered Emmanuel and Renata Bally. Pilchik was put under pressure by the police. From publicly available accounts, it's not entirely clear when it happened, but he eventually confessed. Let's now look at the events of March to June 1951 from Pilchik's perspective. I will refresh your memory. On the 6th of March, Hubert Pilchik and Emmanuel Bailey had just reached the gamekeeper's lodge at Nemrick. Following Pilchik's suggestion, Bailey laid down for a nap. Pilchik was wide awake. He waited until Bailey's breathing had become regular, and then he pulled out a rubber baton, reinforced with metal, from his bag. He raised it into the air and then struck Bailey in the head with all of his strength. Emmanuel did not move, but he was still breathing. Hubert struck again and again. Bally was still alive, but Pilchick decided to proceed to the next stage anyway. He poured two bottles of flammable oil all over his body, covered it with straw and hay, and set it on fire. As the flames engulfed the lodge, Pilchick hurried back to Sinet's. He waited a few days. At least the guy was unconscious when the burning happens. 
I guess that's some small relief. He waited a few days before moving to part two of his plan. It was Renata's turn now. Do you remember what he had told her when they had met in Pilsen? Your father is already on the other side. Now it's your turn. And it was, indeed, her turn. On the 17th of March, Renata and Piltrick met in Sonnets. At the first occasion, he stunned her with his rubber bat on. He then stuffed a handkerchief into her mouth, wrapped a clothes line around her neck, and pulled until she was on the other side as well. Piltrick could not set his own house on fire. To hide her body and hinder identification, he stripped it almost completely naked, took it to the woods outside Sonnets, and buried it in the sandpit. What were his motives? Until now, pure greed. All he wanted was to steal the Bally's money and jewelry without having to risk an actual smuggling operation. Okay, so there we go. I mean, total psycho, because he's able to kill people to steal their shit. But it's not just like for love of the kill, which is, uh, that's some Dexter shit. What did I tell you? That sick piece of shit was a stone-cold psycho. What happened next is what set Pilchick apart from an ordinary murderous robber and made him a beast. He returned for Dana. In May, he took the young girl to his house in St. Ed's and told her to hide in the goat's shed, waiting for the right moment to brave the border passes. As time wore on, Pilchick progressively restricted her movements. First, she was not allowed to leave the property, then she was confined to the shed. Pilchick asked her to write some fake letters for her great-auntie and other relatives, reassuring them that everything was perfectly fine and that they were having a great time in Bavaria. Oh my god. If you're captured and you're doing that, it's like, you're f***ed. Dana, of course, realized that something was profoundly wrong. Why couldn't she join her grandpa and auntie Renata in Germany? Why didn't they write any letters back to her? She grew restless, looking for ways to escape Pilchick's clutches. This is when the beast took a radical measure, the results of which will be found by the police search. And this is the something truly horrible that I was referring to earlier. Oh my god, he's gonna cut like a feet off or something, isn't he? Ah, oh, you f***ing sicko. The beast took two wooden planks and joined them together to create a sort of rough, uncomfortable bed. He then fastened the straps at one end of the bed and in the middle. At the other end, he fixed a contraption he had constructed. It was a wooden box, slightly larger than the size of an average head. The box was contained within a larger one, and the spaces between the inner and outer boxes were filled with old rags. Pilchick forced Dana to lay on this wooden bed, fasten the straps to constrain her movements, and locked her head inside the double box. What the f***? Dana could breathe by holding a metal tube in her mouth, but there was little else she could do. Cry of help was futile, as the double walls of the contraption and the rags proved to be pretty soundproof. She was the only one who could hear her own deafening screams. That is f***ed up. Dana spent 12 to 16 hours every day for more than two months locked inside the Pilchick box, unable to move, to drink, to eat. She shirked every time insects, mice, and rats scurried over her body, but her cries were only for her to hear. But the beast was not satisfied yet. It is difficult to tell what went wrong with his head at this stage. It's true there's very little information available about his previous life, but what is known does not suggest any instance of suffered or inflicted trauma which may explain what happened next. As Dana, 12-year-old Dana, lay bound in her wooden prison, the slumber of reason took hold, and monsters burst forth from the predatory and cowardly mind of Hubert Pilchick. It's not known how frequently it happened, and I can only hope as few times as possible, but the man who murdered two of her relatives proceeded to kill the innocence of her body and mind. Made defenseless and blinded by the wooden box, she must have wondered in terror what was happening. What was that man doing to her? Outside the box, silence. Inside, her cries reverberating in the void between the wooden walls. Too often, in these cases, protracted agony ends with inevitable horror. But not this time. Oh my god, does she escape? Oh my god, if she escapes, please, please, don't do this to me, Arnaldo. I'm fully expecting it to be like, and then he does horrible things to her, and then he murders her. Come on, come on, come on, come on. When the police raided Pilchick's house and 
Shed, they found Dana still alive, locked inside the instrument of her torture, but still alive. Amazing. I mean, not amazing. This is fucking horrible. But this is good. And just on time, it seems, Pilcher confessed that come September, he would have enacted part three of his plan. Kill Dana, kill the great auntie, kill his wife, Antonia, and then escape to Germany. But Dana was released, thankfully. She returns a normal life, however possible, and even later, married and had children. Amazing. Dana, you legend. I'm so happy you escaped. This is such a nice ending compared to normal. <laughs> fucking Pedro Lopez, man, you fuck. Excuse me, but I'm being traumatized here. End of the beast. As per Hubert Pilchik, the Beast of Sonets, he was taken into custody awaiting trial. Detectives rummaged through the suitcases found at his house, finding evidence that he may have robbed and murdered at least three more refugees in addition to the Bally's. At least. The number of victims has never been established with certainty, but it could have easily been in the dozens. Every time his modus operandi was the same. Pilchik would first collect payments from the would-be escapees, then lure them to a secluded location and stun them with his baton. Next, he proceeded to destroy or conceal the bodies. Authorities speculated that Pilchik was usually extremely competent at hiding bodies. That's why no of his other victims were ever found. But when he targeted the Bally's, he had somehow become sloppy, leaving too many clues behind. Dude, you're burying a body in a sandpit. It's gonna be found. Like, what do people do in sandpits? Literally dig. That's why sandpits are there. People dig in sandpits. I don't know what to say, man. That's pretty dumb. Yes, it is, isn't it? <laughs> Especially in the case of Renata, the grave he had dug into the sandpit was too shallow. Had he had the patience to dig for longer, the children would have never found her foot. In preparation for the trial, the beast was indicted for five murders, arson, illegal escape across the border, restriction of personal liberty, abuse of entrusted person, fraud, theft, and endangerment of the moral upbringing of young people. But Pilchik would not live to see the day of his trial. On the 9th of September 1951, Hubert Pilchik fashioned a rope by tying two handkerchiefs and hung himself in his cell. None of his relatives, not even his wife, declared any interest to authorities in collecting the body. It was fitting, after all, that such a vile beast would not receive a decent burial. His remains were then donated for medical and scientific purposes. If you were to visit the beautiful city of Pilsen, after you've exhausted the usual tourist landmarks, make sure to pay a visit to the Institute of Central Medicine. On one of its shelves, you may be able to find a large formalin jar. Inside the jar, the head of the Beast of Sinets is still preserved, for a time unknown. I hope that whatever hell he has been plunged into, it is a narrow, suffocating room from which his screams cannot be heard. Conclusion And so ends the tale of Hubert Pilchek. His confirmed body count would not rank among the deadliest serial killers in history, but his story sure does send chills down one's spine and a gagging feeling at the back of one's throat. As he murdered at least five people for gain, and he killed something else. Something intangible, but no less important. Hope. Dissidents wanting to escape a totalitarian regime had placed all their hopes, their trust, and what little valuables they had in the hands of this seemingly benign middle-aged man, and he betrayed them by callously striking at them behind their backs. And of course, how could we forget the ordeal of Dana, all freedom denied to her, even the freedom to let out a scream of help, condemned to hear nothing but her own cries. Within his goat shed, Pilchik had created a microcosm in which he had replicated the conditions of entire populations who lived, and still live, under the heel of selfish tyrannies. Tied down and incapacitated, their freedom violated, with no one to hear their voices. Dismembered Appendices 1. There could be more to Pilchik's story, more than callous murder and abuse, 
and I'm talking about government intrigue. In August 2008, online news outlet Denek.cz published an article about a group of true crime enthusiasts revisiting the scene of Emmanuel Bailey's murder. One of them, Mr. Schwartz, claimed having accessed documents related to the case in the police archives in Bruno. A report that when Piltrick's body was found in his cell, there was only one mark or groove on the front of his neck. It may indicate that Piltrick did not hang himself but he was strangled from behind. Schwartz speculated that Piltrick may have been part of the secret police plot I described at the start of this episode, the ruse by which STB agents lured dissidents to fake German border posts and then made them disappear. The plot had been terminated by early 1951, and Piltrick may have been eliminated to prevent him from revealing details to the public. He already confessed. I feel like he'd have confessed to that as well. Being a... Although, I don't know. People would really hate... People would... Look, I think he would have confessed to that as well if that was the case. 2. The crimes of the Beast of Sinets have inspired at least two pieces of fiction. The first one was The Beast, an episode of the Czechoslovak crime TV series 30 Cases by Major Zeman, and it aired in the 1970s. The second one was a play by Spanish author Carlos Bear, which premiered on the 13th of November 2009 at the Santorzi Theatre Festival in northern Spain. I was able to locate only a partial excerpt of the play online, which appears to be very intriguing, with alternating scenes offering the perspectives of two inspector characters called Petter, later revealed to be Pilchik the Beast, playwright Carlos Bear also introduces the concept that Pilchik was an STB agent luring dissidents to fake border controls. This was the same theory described by Mr. Schwartz in the August 2008 article. I wonder if Bear was influenced by that very article. Maybe they were both referring to an earlier source, or maybe it was just a coincidence. Surely one worth exploring in the future. The title of this piece, by the way, is The Pilchik Box, a phrase which I borrowed for one of the sections of this script, hence I want to recognize the author. And this has been an episode of The Casual Criminalist. Thank you so much for being here. The, I like the fact that one of them escaped. This is always like, I mean, it's a horrible situation, but at least there's that. Uh, if you did enjoy this show, please do. If you're listening to it as a podcast, leave us a review. That would be most welcome. Spotify now accepts ratings, so you can give it a little tap on there, apparently. And uh, that'd be fantastic. Also, if you're watching on YouTube, like, subscribe, all of that stuff. And I will see you in the next episode. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.